Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Father? Yes, son? Who invented Rumpy Pumpy? Well, a billion years ago, when I was young, there was no hubba-hubba. Back in my day, times were hard. If we wanted to reproduce, we had to split ourselves in half, down the middle, and that was that. And then this tubular thing came along, sort of like a prehistoric drinking straw, and started reproducing by exchanging sex cells. Fast forward a few hundred million years to this family of armour-plated fish, some as big as sharks that could chomp right through you without thinking. Anyway, a pair of these sharks loved each other very much. One was a daddy and had a male sex organ, and the other was a mummy and had a female sex organ. And it turned out that one of these organs fit handily inside the other. And that was that. And it's been nothing but... (laughs) It's been nothing but shagging ever since. Hello, welcome to Patented, a podcast about the history of inventions from History Hit. I'm Dallas Campbell. Hey, listen, birds do it, bees do it. Educated fleas, they ruddy love it. Today, we're talking to the Australian paleontologist John Long, who spent his life, careful, trying to figure out how beings that lived hundreds of millions of years ago got it on. We'll hear when life came up with its greatest invention ever, sex. And we'll learn which one of our ancient ancestors first did it, like they do it on the Discovery Channel. Enjoy. I'm with John Long, who is in Australia somewhere. Where are you, John? I'm in Adelaide, actually, Dallas. Adelaide. Nice. And John is wearing an Unknown Pleasures t-shirt with jaws on. Just telling me the origins of that. Well, it's from the Joy Division album. And because I work on fossil sharks, I like the theme of sharks, sharks will tear us apart. Ah, ah, nice. I see what you've done there. Very good. Did you design that yourself? No, I bought it in Spain back in uh, a few <laughs> right. months ago when I was over there. <laughs> Just it's so listeners, it's the Unknown Pleasures Joy Division album cover, as which you'll know with the kind of pulsar thing on the front, with the Jaws logo woven into it. Very good. And I should also point out that it's it's nighttime where John is, and he's been drinking Negronis. 
because he's going to a dinner party. So he may be, how many Negronis have you had? I'm only on my first, so it's okay. Oh, that's okay. Oh, that's okay. Well, that's okay. I thought we could do a sort of drunk episode of Patented, a sort of Patented Drunk. Let's do it two hours later. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, depending on, depending on how we go, we'll see how we get on. So I don't even, where do we even, where do we even start? Actually, I'll tell you where we'll start. You've got a shark on your T-shirt. Yeah. Why do you have a shark on your T-shirt? Maybe we should start there. Well, I'm a paleontologist. I work on the evolution of fish, especially early fish from about what's called the Devonian period, which is named after Devon, of course, in England, from about 400 million years ago. And the thing about these early fish is when fish first started to sort of diversify and radiate into the groups that would become the modern sort of fish fauna of sharks and, and bony fish like marlin and goldfish and so on. So armoured sharks are called placoderms. And I'm holding up a model here of a fish that looks like Darth Vader wrapped around its head. It's got like an armoured plated skull. And this thing is called Dunkelosteus, which was about uh, eight metres in length and was the largest of these early armoured, dare I say, shark-like fishes. And the reason I bring this along and why I'm wearing this T-shirt is because I'm an expert that has been studying these ancient armoured placoderm fishes for most of my life. And they're extremely interesting fishes, and they tell us a lot about modern behaviour. Like, you know, let's cut to the chase, about sex. <laughs> I've heard of sex, never done it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, t- what's, okay, well, okay, tell us what you've discovered. Yeah, well, for many years, Dallas, I just went up to these sites in the Kimberley, the far north of Western Australia. It's like another planet. It's so alien and remote with these giant boab trees and wonderful limestone ranges that are jagged. And there's a site up there called Gogo, uh, which is named after an indigenous stockman. And Gogo Station's about the size of a small European country. In fact, there's nine European countries that are smaller than Gogo. Out in this vast area, you can find these rounded rocks with whole complete fossil fish in them. And the beauty of Gogo is the fish are perfectly preserved, uncrushed, You put them in a weak bath of acid, acetic acid, which is the same thing in uh, lemon juice or vinegar, and you dissolve the rock and get the skeleton out in like three-dimensional perfection. So I've been studying these fishes for many, many years. And then one day we found an embryo inside one of these fishes. At first we thought it was the last meal that this shark-like fish ate, you know, it ate something smaller. But then as I studied it further down the microscope, we realised... No, it's actually a mirror image of the adult fish. It was a juvenile of the same fish. And then lo and behold, we found a mineralized umbilical cord that connected it to a hole in the rock. Oh, my God. So it was evidence of the earliest live birth on the planet. Holy crap. What are the chances of that? I know it was, well, I'd been collecting up there for 30 years. I'd never found something. Crikey. And this even made it into the Guinness Book of World Records, the 2010 edition. Page 55, there's a picture of me holding this fish. Nice. I mean, apart from the astronomical improbability of of finding that, what did it tell you? What did you learn from that? Well, at first we thought, wow, this is amazing. It's the oldest evidence of fish with a complex form of sexual reproduction. In other words, they were having sex. They were having copulation. So the males were depositing sperm inside the females. And this was the first evidence of it in the entire fossil record. As we searched more deeply, we started finding more of these and we found other fish with multiple embryos in them. And we realized that this was an early 
evolutionary specialization of giving birth to live young. So, okay, so let's sort of define our terms. Let's go sort of all the way back to the beginning. We'll start at the last universal common ancestor. Yes. Things reproduced, obviously, because, because here we are, but they didn't re- reproduce sexually. So what, do, what did we have before then? We had asexual reproduction where things clone each other and they sort of split in halves like amoeba and uh, hydra and things like that. And everything is a perfect clone of its parent. And then sexual reproduction kicks in with the eukaryotes, which are the first celled creatures to have a nucleus inside that cell. So we know this because from eukaryotes today, you have all sorts of creatures, you know, algae and amoebas and things like that, that actually have a complex kind of cell chemistry. But the beauty of being a eukaryote is you pass your DNA along to the next generation as a package. And so that's what's called the beginning of sexual reproduction. Okay, what did sexual reproduction look like then? I mean, it wasn't the kind of sex. Well, in terms of fossils, we have some of the oldest evidence for sexual reproduction in fossils from South Australia in the Flinders Ranges, which is about, you know, 600 kilometres north of, of the town of Adelaide. Now, there, there are beautifully preserved animals that date back to 560 million years old which is the oldest well-preserved assemblage, if you like, of animals anywhere in the world. You also have these in England at Charnwood. You have sort of early pre-Cambrian kind of impressions of animals. But there's one particular kind of fossil that occurs in Ediacara, which is unique. And it tells us that these creatures were having sex because we have whole layers of rock with these coral-like creatures that are all at the same stage of development, all at the same height. And what this is telling us is that there was a spawning event. So think of coral today on the Great Barrier Reef. The coral opens up under the full moon and they shed their sperm into the water and their eggs. And, you know... I do that. Um, yes, a massive reproduction event. During the full moon. Yep. We all like to do that. So it's the, these are sort of coral-like creatures. Yeah. So the evidence is simple that if they were not sexually reproducing you wouldn't have this one spawning event where everything grows at the same in sort of discrete packages of growth got it natural selection i mean this is a a podcast about invention and about design and i suppose natural selection is that great in a heavy inverted commas that great designer it finds solutions over time through generations why is okay why did we go from asexual reproduction kind of cloning yourself to sexual reproduction? Like, why did it find that solution? Like, what's good about it? Well, it comes back to a Darwin's simple idea of survival of the fittest, that if your genetic makeup is all the same, you're all clones of each other, and a disease comes through, then all of you are either going to be resistant or non-resistant, and you can all be wiped out kind of thing. So variation in genetics is a good thing. It means that if we have a population of a species where they differ, Like today with coronavirus and COVID-19, basically some people are more resistant than others. And so species have a greater chance of survival with with that variation in their gene pool. When people hear the word fittest, they always think of the idea of being fit as in I'm running and therefore I'm fit. But didn't Darwin mean fittest as in fit as in a jigsaw puzzle fit, whatever fits nature best, if you see what I mean, or whatever fits into the niches that nature creates. So it's a kind of jigsaw puzzle fit rather than 
physical fit. Yeah, that's right. Well, fittest in nature really means the best reproductive ability. It's not who's the strongest fittest. No, I, I mean, a, a wonderful British biologist, John Maynard Smith, invented... Am I allowed to swear in this podcast, by the you way? You can swear. I can hear the, I can hear the <laughs> ice of your Negronis clinking in. <laughs> okay. Okay. So John Maynard Smith invented this idea called the sneaky f- hypothesis. And that basically comes down to while the bull male stags are battling it out for who's going to sort of rule the harem... The intelligent male that's watching is, meanwhile, getting on with the business behind the scenes with the most gorgeous females. And so this is how the gene pool is not dominated just by the brute genes of the strongest, but also the intelligent ones get in there as well. So this is an important thing in evolution. And there's wonderful work about sperm competition, where all sorts of creatures from wasps to crabs to agouti and small rodents they have the ability to remove the sperm of the previous male from a mating and deposit their sperm instead. Or chickens, for example, and birds that have the ability to hold sperm for, for months at a time and select the sperm that's the fittest, shall we say, for their fertilised eggs. So, you know, nature's far more complicated than Darwin thought. I was in Britain not too long ago, actually, only a few weeks ago, and I was at Down House and I was pondering about Darwin's idea of sexual selection. And it was always about the males were dominating the whole circus of reproduction and the females did nothing. But we know so much more now that the females actually play the dominant role in nature, at least, with you know the way they control the mating process and the way they control the fertilization process. We'll be back after this short break. We try to bring you cold, hard facts on Gone Medieval, but January is all about mysteries. Impossible riddles from medieval history that defy efforts to solve them. How did the presence of a mysterious saviour from the East turn into devastation? What secrets does a book written in an unknown code hide? Did kings and princes really die when history has assumed they did? I'm Matt Lewis, and in January, we'll see how close we can get to answering the unanswerable and ask how these mysteries might be solved in the future. Okay, so we've established that you get a more diversity. I mean, it's a daft question, I know, but who who invented sexual intercourse? It was the fish, was it? Okay, well, well, all I'm saying basically for the fish were the ones that invented copulation and made sex intimate for the first time. This is what I want to get to. So, okay, so uh, it was a Thursday sex was invented, I believe. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Let's talk about why it's a good idea. So why, what, what... Let's go back to the core of what we're talking about and the reason why copulation is important in evolution. Because just think about it. If you don't copulate, what's your option? You can lay lots of eggs. And, you know, the extreme of this are fish like salmon and trout that can lay tens of thousands of eggs and hope that one or two make it to survival and pass on the gene pool. So it's really like a brutal kind of evolutionary formula if you're a fish. But when you copulate, you invest in much fewer young inside the female. And so humans especially, you know, one, two or three, sometimes, you know, up to larger numbers. But normally you're going to bring that baby to to a large state of advancement and it's going to have a much better chance of survival. And say early mammals could give birth to live young that were already well developed and within a few days ready to, uh, they would suckle off their mother for a while, but then ready to feed and, and stand on their own two feet. And so that's the success of, of this kind of internal fertilisation. It's the mothers are giving up 
a lot of their ability to flee and be fast in the wild, instead to be big and pregnant and nurturing and give life to several young. So as a design solution, it just makes sense. It's a sort of good way of doing it. Can we just, so this this idea of sort of placoderms, these, these early sort of fish that first had sort of copulated, what did their sexual organs look like? Can you just sort of describe what we're looking at, the sort of male and female? I'm glad you asked that question because me and my team, not just me personally, but other other colleagues I work with, we discovered the first male copulatory organs in these fish. And I had to go to Scotland to do this. Ah, the Scottish invented sex, sex, did they? Well, actually, we found some from this site called Gogo in the Kimberley, but they were just disarticulated bits of male sexual organs. They're called claspers. They're like a bony rod that had little hooks and barbs on the end, similar to a shark today has a, a cartilaginous clasp with little hooks and barbs to keep it inside the female while they deposit a package of sperm. I have that, yeah. Let's go to Scotland. I had three expeditions working in the Orkneys, which one of my favourite places on earth. It's so beautiful. And the whiskey there. God, the whiskey's fantastic. <laughs> and uh, anyway, this, this little site in South Renalsi, we found this tiny little fish that's called Microbrachius dickei. Now, I'm not joking. I'm not joking. Because when it was named over 100 years ago, it was basically named after Robert Dick, who was a fossil collector that found the first specimens. So this is a tiny fish. Imagine it's about six inches long at the most. It's got a little bony armour, plates covering the head. It's got weak little jaws and eyes in the centre of its head. It's a bit like a, a catfish or, a you know, one of those simple fish. But the odd thing about it that doesn't make it a fish in today's sort of imagination, is it had two bony arms that were segmented coming out the front of the fish, where it should have had fins like a shark or a normal fish. And what did these bony arms do? They had little hooks on the inside of the arms. So scientists pondered over this for a long time. And we realised when we found these fish that had these monstrous sexual organs coming off the, the back of the body, they had these hooked L-shaped bones with grooves to pass the sperm packages so they could fertilise the females, that these bony arms were to interlock and so they could get into a mating position. Because otherwise, how does a fish with just little fins get those massive bony sexual organs into the right spot of the female? It's awfully difficult to do if you're a fish, but if you can lock yourselves together, what I call the do-si-do position, the square dance position, then you can actually mate and deposit that sperm. And so they were highly successful because of that. There you go. So I'm going to, can we say with a high degree of uncertainty that sex was invented by two fish in the Shetland Islands? Well, yeah, the BBC had a headline saying sex invented in slimy Scottish lake. <laughs> That's back. I love that. I love Yeah, yeah I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with that. We've got the male sexual organ. We've got barbed, lots of barbs to keep everything in place and to grab onto things. Yeah. From the female point of view, what's going on? Well, this was the other big discovery, Dallas, with microbrachius, because it was the very first time in evolution we'd found sexual dimorphism, where the males and the females actually differed with different different sexual organs. So the males had the big L-shaped structures. The females had these small little bony plates with a very roughened surface. So it's actually like cheese graters, if you like. And so these cheese graters would hook onto the little barbs and hooks on the microbrachius male organ to lock it into position for copulation. So, yeah, first time ever we have the, the female sexual reproductive organs preserved in, in a vertebrate, a backboned animal. Got it. I'm going to jump wildly in time now because I, I want to know, when did, when did sex become fun? 
Like, why, uh, how did that evolve? Like, where did, why did it become a kind of pleasurable pastime? Well, we know that many animals have orgasms because that's the purpose of why a female would let a female, a male actually, you know, mate with them. The question is, when did an orgasm first evolve? Yeah, when, who had the first orgasm? Well, we, it's hard to say. I, I mean, we know, for example, recent research published only two weeks ago shows that female snakes have a, a clitoris. So why would a snake want a clitoris? They have two of them because the male snakes have hemipenes or two, two penis-like structures for mating. So you've got to have something that makes it worth your while, otherwise you're not going to do it, are you? So we, ha- we have to assume that all creatures have some sort of sexual pleasure. That's really... And, and so it, from in the sort of evolutionary tree, is there a, did your sort of ancient fish have pleasure from doing it in a way that we would kind of think about it? <laughs> I like to think so, Dallas. Shetland, are Shetland orgasms? Shetland fish orgasms? Well, there were so many of these bloody things in the rocks, they're everywhere. There are so many of them that they must have been doing it right, so the females must have enjoyed it, that's all I can say. I'll tell you a funny story about this. When this story broke through, we published the paper in Nature, and it was massively big news. It was on not the nine o'clock news, you know, the BBC. It was on Saturday Night Live in America. It was like, it was everywhere. I was interviewed by journalists from all around the world asking me all sorts of questions about microbrachiasticae. But the most interesting and salient question came from a German journalist that said, Oh, so it had one on one side and one on the other side. Could it have done the two females at once? <laughs> and all I could say to that was possibly, but we don't know. <laughs> a fish threesome. Yep. It is kind of weird though, like human beings as a, as, as a species, we've become so advanced. The fact that we still copulate, but not in order to reproduce. We yeah. do it for, as a kind of art form for, for pleasure. A bit like kind of eating. We we, yeah. we sort of eat, but we don't eat to stay alive. We eat for sort of pleasure and it's become this, you know, the fact that we make TV shows about it, it's become sort of something else. Maybe the next generation of reality TV shows will all be about sexual pleasure. <laughs> yeah. Are we going to sort of unevolve? Are we going to sort of stop? I, I, you know, I read somewhere actually that the, the birth rate's declining massively and people have stopped having sex at the moment. We're, we're going through some... Kind of strange, but I think I don't. I don't think that's evolutionary reasons. Well, we're also losing the male Y chromosome. It's decreasing, and fertility is decreasing massively across the world in males. So, yeah, maybe this modern life, as comfortable as it is, is there's so many other chemical components coming into our lives that it's affecting our ability to reproduce. Who knows? I, I'm certainly not an expert in that area. Crikey, listen, I think and we're going to let you go, John. You've got a dinner party to go to, and I don't know what else you've got to go to. You've got Negroni's keeping <laughs> away there. Yeah. But just tell us, have you, you've got a book out, haven't you? Oh, well, this book came out about... Ten years ago, it's called Dawn of the Deed. There we go. We, and holding it up, there's a, a dinosaur shagging another dinosaur with a redactor over the particular areas. Good. So if you want to read about the history of sex in evolution, you know. Dawn of the Deed. There we go. John, thank you very much. It's been a, a pleasure. Um, natural selection, the great inventor. It is the great inventor, It, it is. It? Yeah, sex is the best invention of evolution. It's a really useful invention. It's for all kinds of reasons. Yeah, it's been great talking to you, Dallas. Thanks, John. Enjoy your dinner party. Thank you, mate. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye-bye. That's it. Thanks for listening. Uh, don't forget, get in touch with any suggestions and don't forget to leave a rating or a review if you can bear to. I will see you next time. Thank you very much for your company as ever. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch. Download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play, and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes, or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Falk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code Patented at the checkout, you get 50% off your first three months. That's patented for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.